Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A warning to listeners. Today's episode deals with domestic abuse and mentions suicide. Miraculously, I am undivorced, but man, I have watched friends go through it during this pandemic. I never used to pay much attention before when people complained about their divorces, about the lawyer's bills, about their endless bitter squabbles with their exes. Frankly, it's like one of those subjects that I would chew my own arm off to get away from. People just lose all boundaries. You know, like you you just meet somebody for the first time at a party and ask, how are you? And 40 minutes later, they are still whinging on with these endless, sad persecution narratives in which the entire universe is conspiring against them. It's very painful to listen to. And my internal response, I don't say this, of course, but I always think like, dude, lady, your relationship is over. Move on. But now... I have seen up close exactly what the divorce process entails, and now I kind of get it. People get mad because they're not being allowed to move on. You know, divorce isn't the end of something, or at least it's not just the end of something. It is the beginning of a whole new thing, not a good thing. It's a thing where the law, and if necessary, the courts, like the state, suddenly has tremendous power over your private life. And surprise, surprise, that power is not always exercised well or fairly. Look, it might be impossible for two people to smoothly and simply detangle their lives, financially and parentally, from each other's, even in the best possible circumstances. But the circumstances in Canada are far from best. An estimated 70 to 85,000 divorces are filed every year in this country, which throws 140 to 170,000 people into the family court system. And that system is broken. Financially, I'd been sort of crushed over three and a half years with lawyers' bills, um, you know, trying to maintain my children's lifestyle, trusting that the system would protect me in the end. And, oh, you know, it'll happen. It'll eventually come around. And it just didn't. The system fails the kids who get caught in the middle. It's my contention that we treat our children worse than people accused of crimes. And I'll back it up. The system literally results in life or death. You know, Kira's two-year anniversary of her murder is coming up. She would be turning seven in May. You know, she should still be here. This was entirely preventable. And the pain and anger and... You know, everything that we've gone through, um, it really can't be put into words so easily. Today's story is not about bitching and moaning over unfair child support payments. It's not an episode about people's shitty exes. In fact, we're going to leave out the names of former spouses. It's, it's not really relevant here. 
Now, what you're going to hear today are stories about how Canada's divorce system is broken and how it fails the people that it is supposed to be protecting. Our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk, has this one for you. Happy Valentine's Day. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Joshua Gorey, Tor Lukasik Foss, Dagny Dubois, Liz Fletcher, Jody Harding Kruger, Paul Pritchard, Rebecca Jones Howe, and Elena. My name is Elena. I'm a designer from Vancouver, and I support Canada Land because I love the backbenches, diverse political analysis, and I think supporting Canadian media is really important. Divorce sucks. I don't even mean the concept of going separate ways from a person that you thought you'd spend your whole life with. I mean the divorce process. Lawyers, court filings, delays, mediators, legal bills. It's all terrible. Most people who go through it end up with some sort of stress disorder associated with seeing their lawyer's name pop up in their email inbox. I have, over the course of three and a half years, (laughs) I've now developed a complete paranoia and fear of emailing my lawyer because every single email is a cost. Every time you get on a phone with your lawyer and you think you're having a friendly conversation, you're being charged for that. That's Candace. You'll meet her a little bit later on. But the traumatic nature of the divorce process isn't just a Canadian phenomenon. It's seen around the world, and it's led to some really creative attempts to make it less awful. For example, in the Netherlands, the posh Divorce Hotel offers mediation services between teeing off at the golf course and massages. But that's not what it looks like for the thousands of Canadians that enter into the process each year. How many thousands, you ask? Well, that's a good question. Canada hasn't even published comprehensive divorce statistics since the mid-2000s. So is there a COVID divorce boom? Who knows? Anecdotally, lawyers have certainly claimed there is. Today you'll hear firsthand what the experience of divorcing in Canada is like, and why this country has such a long way to go if the divorce system ever hopes to adequately serve the people it's supposed to. But before we get to those stories... I want to introduce you to the two legal minds that will help us navigate our way down the divorce rabbit hole. These guys know the system inside and out. Man, I've been at this a long time, so yes, I've seen lots since I got admitted to the bar, so yeah. This is Rolly Thompson. I'm now described as Professor Emeritus at the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie. Beyond being a now-retired law professor in Halifax, he's also worked as a private practice family lawyer, and he ran a legal aid family law clinic for years. I've taught family law and practiced family law and worked a great deal on family law reforms, both provincially and federally. We will also be relying on the expertise of a practicing family lawyer from Toronto, Philip Beatter. I am a a family law lawyer and uh, am now in my 13th year of uh, private practice. And I have a firm, Beatter and Perlman Family Law Group. Between the two of them, we will navigate through four stories that demonstrate a litany of problems in the divorce system. Financial accessibility, conflicts of interest, as well as a failure to recognize domestic abuse that can end in financial ruin, or worse, a lost life. Rolly and Philip will help explain why those problems persist, how common they are, and 
you know, if there's any solutions that might make it better. The stories you'll hear are from Mark, Amanda, Candace, and Jennifer. These people's stories will show, with increasing intensity, just how big the stakes are and how big the failures can be. First up is Mark. When I started digging into this story, I put a call out to people. I wanted to hear the stories that could illustrate these issues in real terms. But much to my surprise, a law professor was one of the first people to reach out to me. Now, he's not a professor of family law, but to hear from someone in the legal community say, hey, yeah, I'll talk about how messed up this is, that was pretty surprising to me. However, because the legal community isn't all that big and he does still have to work within it, we aren't using his real name. Mark is an alias. I wish it was easier to have these conversations, to be honest. But also, he doesn't want this discussion of his divorce to hurt his former spouse. My concerns are not with my ex, right? My concerns are with the system. When Mark reached out, he was clear that this wasn't a woe-was-me story. But why he specifically wanted to talk about his experience in the divorce system was because ultimately it represents the best-case scenario. And even in the best of circumstances, acrimony creeps in because it's just the nature of the setup. But his story starts the way that so many do. My ex and I met when we were young and got married really young. And we came from religious backgrounds, and that kind of pushes you in a particular direction. And the reality was that, you know, like many people, I think we just, we had different directions we wanted to head in in our lives. And we kind of came to a, a point in time where it just wasn't working for either of us, I guess. And so Mark and his soon-to-be former wife drew up a tentative separation agreement that they both found acceptable, divvied up their assets, their debts, decided who would take the kids to swimming and all of that. You know, it wasn't fun um, and it wasn't easy and we weren't thrilled about it, right? But we decided that we wanted the best for one another outside of that because that was also what's best for our kids. So we were very amicable, I think, as one can be in that situation. I think we did a, a really good job. For, for quite a while of being amicable. Amicable, that is, until their divorce lawyers got involved. Yeah, it changed entirely when my ex's lawyer became involved because we made a, an agreement as to how that would look and how that we would both end up okay, both in the short and long term. And that changed entirely. Things that were never on the table prior to talking to a lawyer became on the table. This moment was everything. Mark thought this was a done deal. Now all of a the sudden, there was demand creep. And he was kind of pissed about it. But he had a decision to make. He could give in to his feelings and open up the whole agreement as a result. Or he could roll over and take the hit to avoid fighting and much higher legal bills. But for Mark, it showed that this divorce process, in order to function well, relies on two partners working in the best interest of one another which one can assume isn't really all that common when you're talking about a marriage that's already broken down. Hurt feelings sometimes, you know, and particularly in the moments of what is traumatic, right? No matter what way you slice it, I, I immediately lost half of my time with my kids. That's trauma. And so people are, I think, susceptible to being led a certain way. Like, it is in the best interest of that lawyer to identify something that is wrong right, to show and demonstrate that their hours are worth it. And, you know, they don't lose anything by making it more acrimonious. They only stand to gain. 
And that's a very cynical look. But the lawyer that I was dealing with drives a Bentley for a reason. And I know people make money, but the reality is, is that I think that there's actually a conflict of interest sometimes in representing an individual's interests without disclosing that actually, you know, like in, in my particular case, it was actually contrary to my ex's interest to change things because had it not been for my, you know, willingness to accept, I knew what was coming if I decided to fight because I'm trained in law and I have a lot of colleagues that work in this area. I knew what was coming. And in fact, my lawyer said to me outright, you have two choices. You can divide this two ways or four ways. You decide. Hourly rates for divorce lawyers can range from a low end of around $275 per hour to more than double that, depending on where you live and how much experience the lawyer has. Each email, each phone call, each meeting over the course of months and more often years, even in the simplest of cases, adds up to thousands and thousands of dollars. This is what made Mark want to share his story and take part in the conversation. From a legal ethics lens, he certainly wasn't disenfranchised by the legal process, but the ethical and financial implications for others is enormous. This is something I think about in the context of my legal career overall. You know, we often do not appreciate the challenges that one has in navigating the system unless they're extremely poor, and in which case they may qualify for certain clinical help, which is limited, or extremely wealthy. The folks that kind of sit in between, which would be the vast majority, this is debilitating. Now, you don't have to get a lawyer to get divorced. People try to brave the legal system on their own all the time. This would theoretically sidestep the matter of legal bills and possibly added acrimony by involving lawyers. But bringing Professor Roley Thompson back in here, he says that approach has got a cost of its own. I wrote a lot at one point in my career about unrepresented litigants. The reality is in family law matters, uh, two things. Number one, self-represented litigants tend to end up in a courtroom rather than resolving things. And number two, there are some things self-represented litigants do very, very badly. They are called property division, spousal support, taxes, pensions, all the stuff that is complicated, they do very badly at. They make big mistakes. And by the way, generally unrepresented litigants don't do as well as those who are represented. Not surprisingly. Not surprisingly. (laughs) Yeah, like no one is questioning the value of lawyers' advice in these circumstances. The problem here is that instead of having two sides trying to sort things out, it often ends up with four sides, two exes, two lawyers, four parties, each fighting for what they want and not necessarily what's best. As the bills pile up, people end up calling in every favor they have to get the representation they need. People have to borrow money from family members, uh, go into debt, all of those things. And there's definitely no simple solution here. As a practicing lawyer in Toronto, Philip Vieta recognizes this accessibility issue, and as a result, he's actually changed how he bills to try and ease the load. The legal fees that litigants incur are obscene. And I'm a lawyer myself, but I personally have a different billing approach. So I'm not the type of lawyer that'll bill you for every single email or text message or telephone call. You know, I try to be reasonable and I try to work within a budget. Other lawyers, and they're permitted to do so, they will charge you for every email and text message. And if the other side sends 10 emails a day because 
it could be a strategy or it could just be because something else, they'll charge you for all 10 of those emails to the point where it's, it's incredibly unaffordable. So it's something that I think a law society should start addressing in terms of maybe setting some sort of limits. But it's also a very difficult thing to do because every case is different. You may have a case that legitimately will take longer because maybe there's more complicated finances, maybe there are other complicated issues. But the problem is that the people who don't have as complicated cases get lumped in with that, get billed the same amount, even though their resources may not be anywhere near the same as somebody who has, let's say, millions of dollars in assets. It means that even with legal advice, people end up settling, sometimes for less than perhaps they deserve, because the mounting bills just get too big and there's no guarantee there will eventually be a payoff. They just run out of money. They feel forced to settle because they have no choice. And uh, their lives are impacted and children are impacted. It's a problem. This is all to say the divorce system has a real accessibility problem. And as a client, you have to trust that your biggest advocate in this process is fighting against their own self-interest of driving up your legal bills. This accessibility issue definitely played a big role in Amanda's divorce. I'm Amanda, and I'm a queer mom of two and a small business owner in Toronto. But hers was also a situation that was messier than Mark's. Amanda had been in a heterosexual marriage for nine years when she took the step of coming out as gay to her husband and family. In my case, as soon as I came out, I got the I'm keeping the kids and the house get out sort of reaction, um, which later simmered down a bit. As things stabilized, Amanda and her ex entered into the legal process, which took what had already been a traumatic situation to a new hellish level. But it was the system that caused a lot of it. Like in the initial conversations with a lawyer, my lawyer, and pretty quickly after his lawyer said, you know, if either of you leave the house before you have a separation agreement, you forfeit primary custody of your child, your children. And it was like, holy shit, like, (laughs) I can't even get away from this person in order to figure out what we're going to do or try to figure out a harmonious solution or try on different types of living situations that would not involve fighting in the house with the two kids. But I've got this legal advice that says, yeah, you can't go. And he got the same advice. So then we're stuck living together in a small semi-detached house in Toronto meant we were in the same bed together for a long time. And then lockdown hit. And finances became really uncertain because I am a small business. And so it was this really frustrating scenario where I thought I can't, like the only way to do this is to go through the system and I hate it and I don't want to do any of this, right? I just want to, I don't want to be married anymore. Why is this so hard? Amanda wasn't the breadwinner in the family and had taken two mat leaves. So she was immediately at a financial disadvantage with her partner. And her new business was being threatened by COVID restrictions. And so money ended up being a huge stressor. People were throwing around numbers like, oh, it cost me $10,000 to get divorced. Oh, it cost me $20,000 to get divorced. And I thought, no way. I don't have it, right? There's no way. I can't can't pay that. So I guess I have to go with something else. I have to find a cheaper lawyer or I guess I have to try mediation. Mediation is often heralded as the cheaper and theoretically less combative option, where both sides sit down with someone who specializes in conflict resolution and they work their shit out. 
But just because it's cheaper doesn't mean it's cheap. While Amanda's lawyer was billing at $400 an hour, a mediator bills at $150. And normally those fees are demanded in a lump sum as soon as you walk in the door. Retainers for lawyers and a package of sessions for mediators. The sticker shock did force Amanda to, for a moment, consider staying in her marriage. I already paid my retainer, so $4,000 at the door. And we started with a $150 an hour mediator, 10 sessions with that person. And that was when we went from like calm and just um, in my head, like, can we just get this done in 10 hours to this is going to be a huge fight because mediation made it so much worse. Everything in our marriage got dragged up. Everything. Parenting styles, old arguments. Suddenly, instead of hashing out who was going to live where and when and how much child support would be, Amanda felt like she was in couples counseling. To boot, Despite looking for a mediator who would be sensitive to the LGBTQ dissolution of a marriage, she felt like there was no understanding offered. So two years and $20,000 later, Amanda still isn't divorced. She almost is, sort of, but not quite. But at least she's able to live in an apartment of her own now. I mean, the Canadian divorce system is broken, full stop. And it certainly doesn't support women. And it certainly doesn't support anybody who is not a, you know, upper middle class income earner. Um, The system wants you to stay married. And yet I'm so much more free than I was when I was married. I sleep much better. Um, I don't feel like I'm going to die. Like I was, I'm not exaggerating when I say I was absolutely suicidal and had suicidal ideation leading up to the divorce because I just felt like I'm trapped. This isn't who I am. This isn't who I want to be anymore. I don't want to be in this marriage. Uh, I don't want to be in this relationship and I don't know how to get out of it. And I think there are a lot of women who are in the same position as me and it's devastating um, because It just shouldn't be this difficult and have so many areas of your life disrupted because you want a romantic relationship to end. Those are some pretty bleak choices laid out there. Stay in a marriage where the feeling of being trapped is so intense that it moves you to thoughts of suicide or face a devastating blow to your finances that will have impacts for years. Some of you out there might be thinking, oh, well, surely there are resources for people who can't afford a lawyer. Well, sort of, but certainly nothing for Amanda. Legal aid clinics have income cutoffs for access, and the threshold varies from province to province, but it's really low. Just ask Rolly Thompson. He ran a legal aid clinic in Halifax for years, after all. So, for example, in Nova Scotia, to get legal aid, you pretty much have to be on a fixed income social assistance of some kind or perhaps part-time low-wage work. Anyone with a full-time minimum wage job pretty much is going to be ineligible for legal aid. And that's typical across the country. This is unsurprisingly connected to the fact that legal aid is chronically underfunded in every province and territory. Comparatively, though, some places do shake out ahead of others. Quebec is by far the best legal aid plan in the country. BC once had a great legal plan until it got gutted by the Campbell government. The Ontario legal aid plan is not a very good plan and has been gutted a number of times. Family tends to be treated as what's left over after we funded criminal law, which, of course, has an inherent bias because the predominant poor people dealing with family law are women. 
Amanda was being held hostage by a system that costs a lot and moves slowly. And that was just because her situation was somewhat more complicated. It's impacted her mental health, financial well-being, everything. But unfortunately, this is far from the worst-case scenario. These systemic failures can be further exaggerated and even weaponized by either a spiteful or abusive partner. Philip Viadar says he sees it all of the time in his practice. One of the tools that abusers will use is they will use the litigation as a further form of abuse. And they'll do that by dragging their heels. They won't engage in the process. They'll say they're not available when they clearly are. They won't answer correspondences. And in some cases, they'll just keep bringing motions against you, even if they're frivolous, just to keep you always in a state of perpetual stress and uncertainty. They will disobey court orders. And so they will drag it out. They will cause financial harm. And they will also take advantage of delays in the court, just even irrespective of whether it's an abuse case or not, because the court right now are so backlogged with cases. And this isn't just a COVID thing. This was even before COVID, that it could take upwards of four months in some cases to even get before a judge to hear an urgent matter. That is what Candace was up against. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Candace was married for almost 19 years when she decided to leave her husband in June of 2018. So three and a half years in the system, and I don't want this to be a story about him, frankly. Um, I would prefer this to be a story about how the courts are enabling the behavior that he exhibited. And it's not just him, it's people across Canada, the stories that I've heard myself. It's not uncommon. That's the terrible part about this. This is not uncommon. Interestingly enough, Candace's ex promised her a nightmare of a divorce right off the bat. She just didn't really think it would be possible. At that point, she still believed the family court system worked. He told me in an email in July of 2018, I won't pay another bill. And to be honest, I didn't really believe it because I thought, well, that's insane. And also he's just angry, right? We have anger in the beginning. And this was within a couple of weeks of our marriage ending. Candace went on with the process. She set up a date for mediation. Her ex then canceled the sessions. Without his participation, Candace had to go before a judge, which took 
months to schedule. Candace and her ex were told by the judge that they were each required to submit financial documents. And despite ample time being given, the financial disclosure was never submitted by her partner. A year passes between her original court date and the next time she can get in to see a judge to try and get the process moving. In February, I got before a judge. She gave him a very stern warning, which makes me laugh. You know, gave him a stern warning, told him not to put his head in the sand. He must have his disclosure in by a certain date. She asked him if he understood what she was saying and if he understood the consequences. He agreed, never got the disclosure in. And, you know, gives, of course, months for him to get this disclosure in, which is crazy, blows by that date. And instead of a consequence being enforced that day, which would make sense because that seems the right way, it took another six months before a consequence was laid out. And in six months out in the real world, that has huge impact on people. The incremental delays add up. It was years into the process before the courts eventually struck Candace's former partner from the proceedings. The court would now make decisions without his participation. But then, still, for months, the case just sat there, waiting for a judge to have time to look at it. I asked my lawyer several times to follow up. They did follow up a couple of times, but what I kept hearing was, we don't want to alienate the judge. My head wanted to explode. Like, I give a shit about the judge? Like her opinion of me is going to change because I'm asking her to please, please, oh, please have mercy on me and give me a ruling so I can have my life back. That's infuriating. This is indignation you can understand when you think about the situation she was left in for years while she waited. You're held hostage. So my wealth was in the matrimonial home and I couldn't get my wealth out of the home unless he participated. Without that wealth, I was now frozen. I could not buy another home. Oh, and by the way, I also couldn't buy another home because I didn't have a divorce agreement or official separation agreement because he would not participate. Without those things, the bank would not give me a loan. It was three and a half years before a judge finally granted Candace sole ownership of the home, where, in the interim, her ex-husband had been living alone. When Candace walked into the house last December, after taking possession, it was the smell that hit her first. Mold. The power had been cut and a whole floor of the house had been flooded. So we're going into the basement area here. The water was up to there. You can see where it was. All of this is all covered in mold. That's all mold all over the walls. That's a remediation expert touring the house after she got possession. The floor is actually floating still. Bathroom area. Again, just the estimate to repair the damage to the home came in at $175,000. And so at the very end, on December 13th, three and a half years of me, you know, going through the motions, following every single rule there was, uh, came down to walking into a home that had been destroyed, saddled with debt two weeks before Christmas and COVID and trying to stay afloat, already crushed under debt. And then people turn around and go, what did you do to bring this about? You know what I did? I followed the rules. And it's not like this is the end of the road for her. Now she has to try and salvage what she has and enter into civil court proceedings outside of the divorce process. 
I am also trying to ascertain if it's worth it to try and stay in the home and fix it and sell it or sell it now as is and lose a lot of money in the process because somebody else is going to make the money off that home. But these are all decisions that are huge. They have massive consequences on my life and they affect my children. I mean, at the end of the day, this affects my children's legacy. And that is also infuriating. I mean, what I have spent in court costs are university educations, um, you know, weddings, all of these things that I would like to help my children with down the road, home purchases, all of these things have now been affected for my kids. So it's not just me that the courts failed to protect. It's my children. And to be frank, it's also him because if the courts had stepped in and did, you know, enforce consequences in a timely manner, we wouldn't be at this point. And you know what? He would have some money out of that home as well, because that's how it was supposed to work. You trust in the system that they will act and they don't in your best interest. And as far as I'm concerned, it's negligence. If the family court system doesn't want to do its job, then get out of the divorce business and let us go to it because this is all that's happening is they're leaving a trail of broken lives behind them. But you know, if you're going to stay in this, then start doing your job, start enforcing, hire more people and recognize financial abuse for what it is. Recognize these delays and come down hard on the party who's doing it because what you're doing every day you let a deadline go by is you're emboldening the other party. You're empowering them to keep going. You are complicit in this abuse essentially. And you're traumatizing people. The family courts are traumatizing people. They are just as guilty as the person who is delaying. Okay. Let's bring our legal minds back in here. Rolly Thompson says that in most cases, dividing finances is something the courts actually do really well. How things are supposed to be divided is codified, and for the most part, things are divvied up 50-50. But if a partner, as it is in Candace's case, is prepared to act in a self-destructive way just to hurt the other person, there's little the courts can currently do about that. Divorces deal quite handily with issues of financial abuse by way of child support, spousal support, and property, okay? If a spouse is determined not to work um, and is determined to be poor, then, you know, there aren't a lot of remedies. You know, if I quit my job and don't work, then it's hard to make you pay support. Judges can impute income to people to say, you know, you quit your $60,000 a year job, I'm going to treat you like you're still making it, but then you can't get blood from a stone in the end, right? Depends how desperate people are prepared to be. And Philip says it's about time the family court system becomes a place that recognizes abuse when it's clearly presented in front of them. It's an education that has been nearly entirely absent to this point. Family violence isn't the common stereotype of, you know, that guy who had too, too many beers and hit his wife. That has to end. And we're advocating for that to end. That's not what abuse typically looks like in today's society. Today, Abuse looks more like coercive and controlling behavior, emotional harm, psychological harm, financial abuse. That's what it typically looks like. And it's usually part of a pattern of behavior, not an isolated incident. And many lawyers, and in fact, I would argue judges, don't quite yet grasp that they have to see the pattern of behavior and how it impacts the abuse victim. Now, it's easy to get caught up in the financial aspects of this process because it can absolutely destroy people's financial security, change the course of not only adults' lives, but also their kids. But still, we are not at the bottom of this hole. 
because physical violence is just one more thing the family court system isn't adequately prepared for. And it really can be a life or death situation. There's a reason that Philip, even though he still works in this space, is willing to criticize the divorce process. It's because he is personally, intimately familiar with the stakes. Who is who is Kira? Kira. Kira was <laughs> she was one of the most wonderful um, little girls uh, that the world is is going to miss deeply and, and sorely. She was an incredibly smart uh, little girl. Um, she was so well beyond her years. The stuff that she would do and say and comprehend is unlike anything I have ever seen in any other child. She would have been a world changer. Kira was Philip's four-year-old stepdaughter, and her death was the result of multiple failures in the divorce process. Jennifer's divorce. My name is Jennifer Kagan. Jennifer left her ex-husband, who she refers to as Mr. Brown, six years ago. I mean, so I... I left Mr. Brown, Kira's father, when Kira was nine months old. Um, you know, he, the, the domestic violence towards me was horrific and escalating, you know, incidents of physical violence and a lot coercive control um, to an extreme level, threats of harm towards me and to Kira. And, you know, I left to ensure both of our safety when she was nine months old not really knowing uh, much of anything about the family court process, but yet not having any choice. Jennifer experienced many of the same things that Candace did, where the former partner would use the courts as an abusive tool. He engaged in post-separation abuse towards me and towards Kira. I mean, really using that court process as a way to to harass us, to financially deplete uh, me, to you know, to use Kira as a tool to continue to exert power and control over me. And the court process was was absolutely horrific in the sense that the abuse was largely minimized. Uh, a trial judge, Justice Gray, uh, cut me off on the stand and said, you know, the abuse is not relevant and I'm going to ignore it. Jennifer was forced to watch as her ex-husband used her child as a pawn against her. She was just shy of a year, actually. She was 11 months Mr. Brown absconded with Kira from a doctor's appointment that we had both attended, meaning he, he ran off with her. He, he grabbed her uh, from my arms and ran off into the parking lot. And uh, she had been in my primary care. We had an informal arrangement through lawyers um, in regards to access up until that time. And trying to have her return to my care was what was atrocious. Despite the truly alarming behavior exhibited by her former partner, Jennifer was told that accusing her ex of abuse would end up being something that would only be used against her in the process. She would be the one that would likely be tagged as difficult on the file. However, the file should have spoken loudly enough on its own. It contained 53 court orders against Mr. Brown. He was identified as a repeated liar by the judge. In the fall of 2019, a judge said Mr. Brown's visits with Kira needed to be supervised, but for all of one week. While all of this was happening, Jennifer got remarried to Philip. They did their best to make sure Kira lived a happy and well-adjusted life while she was with them, at least, filled with days of normal things like My Little Pony coloring books. What color do you like? Black, brown, and gray, and all the other colors, except dark, dark. Red. And Jennifer and Philip had a son together, 
a baby brother Kira adored. But things continued to deteriorate, even four years after Jennifer had left. Uh, Mr. Brown was escalating in his behavior, uh, this time um, doing uh, a thing that actually many abusers right before a, a murder would do, which is they're now making allegations that we're the ones who are abusing the children. And of course, the Child Protection Agency found that to be completely false right away, and so did the judge as well. Um, so we had sought to seek to suspend or supervise his access because his behavior was really escalating completely out of control. The judge adjourned the issue, but tasked a child and family services operation that was already involved with filing an emergency motion if Kira's safety was thought to be in danger. On the Friday before her murder, uh, the child protection worker had called us and had told us uh, some very alarming news. She said that Mr. Brown is displaying behavior consistent with someone who would harm or kill their own child. She said that she had spoken to her supervisor, but that her supervisor said, let's talk Monday. And he killed her on the Sunday. In February 2020, Mr. Brown and his daughter Kira were found dead at the bottom of a cliff in the Rattlesnake Point Conservation Area, just southwest of Toronto, in an apparent murder-suicide. Over the last two years since their daughter's death, they've used their sadness and anger, and they've fueled it towards pushing for change. Last week, new legislation was tabled in the House of Commons that would require judges to go through specific training to familiarize themselves with the signs of domestic abuse. This is Liberal MP for York Centre, Yara Sachs. Mr. Speaker, two years ago today, we were horrified to learn of the four-year-old Kara Kagan's death at her father's hands. Despite her mother, Dr. Jennifer Kagan's pleas for Kira's safety and providing ample evidence of a history of coercive control and abuse, the court system failed her and a bright little girl was lost. On Monday, I joined my colleagues from Dorval Lachine LaSalle and Oakville, North Burlington in tabling Bill C-233 to ensure training and education of judges on the warning signs and dangers of domestic violence and coercive control. I want to thank the many families who joined Dr. For Jennifer, it's a complicated sign of hope that change can happen. It's very mixed. It's bittersweet. She would be turning seven in May. There are so many milestones that are very painful for us. And, you know, she should still be here. This was entirely preventable. And the pain and anger and, you know, everything that we've gone through, it really can't be put into words so easily. So every potential success is mixed. And we really, most of all, wish Kira were were alive. Um, but, you know, we're... we're um, grateful to be able to move this forward and help other families. There are other improvements that have been in the works for decades. Creating unified family courts in all Canadian jurisdictions, for example. What's that mean? Okay. Another problem with the process is that judges ruling over divorce cases are often not specialized in family law at all. Many judges are ruling on divorce files off the side of their desk while focusing on other issues primarily. For example, in Jennifer's case, the main judge she dealt with was actually a labor lawyer. Professor Rowley Thompson sees creating a court system exclusively devoted to family law as one of the most obvious steps forward. The idea of a specialized unified family court is you get a judge who does nothing but family law. 
for a start. Number one, you have a, a separate court location with a whole bunch of ancillary services that are specialized for family law issues, not part of the general civil court system. The judge you're in front of will often have been a family law lawyer before they got appointed to the bench. This is an idea that has been around for more than 50 years, but it's still not been implemented across the country. Unified family courts don't exist at all in B.C., Alberta, or Quebec. In other provinces, they might exist, but not in all areas. In Ontario, for example, the Toronto region doesn't have a unified family court system. So what do we have here? We have lawyers whose incentives are misaligned with their clients, but a system that can't really be navigated without the help of a lawyer... The court process that's gameable for spouses who act in bad faith to drain the other party's resources. For people who refuse to participate, they won't even face consequences for years. And we have a distracted judiciary that can't even save a child's life when the threat is right under a judge's nose. There are so many aspects of this process that deserve attention, but it's impossible to get to them all here. And for all of the people who go through this... There are many people who look at this mess and think, no, I'll stay where I am. People who end up trapped in bad and in sometimes dangerous situations because they don't feel there is a way out. And while no one is immune to abuse, it's more likely to happen to women and far more likely to happen to racialized women. Part of the problem with progress is that divorce is one of those things that gets trapped in Canada's jurisdictional wars. The Divorce Act is federal legislation, but each province and territory also have family law provisions and the provinces govern over the courts that implement it all. It's not that no attempts have been made to improve divorce. Last year, the first substantial changes in more than 20 years were made to the Divorce Act that, among other things, identified family violence as a factor that must be considered in determining actions taken in regards to children. But the rate at which change happens, given how many people go through this, is staggering. Millions of people in this country are divorced. Millions. Each of the people you heard from today was not only impacted themselves by a broken process, but their kids were too. Countries around the world are struggling to find the right way of doing this. Japan, for example, allows for a simple form to be filled out by both parties that sidesteps the court system altogether. Many countries have moved towards subsidizing mediators to help, in England and Wales, they even have vouchers to help cover upfront costs. I'll give the last word here to Rowley Thompson. He's advocated for simple changes for decades. More funding and dedicated family courts. Politicians love talking about the importance of children and then devote no money to them. <laughs> if, if politicians really believed that children were the most important resource we had, they would devote a lot more money to family law. But they don't. It's just one of those cynical things that politicians say. They believe it when they say it, but they don't follow through. That is your Canada Land. If you like this show, please support us. Hit the link in the show notes. Go to canadaland.com slash join. It is necessary that listeners support us in order for us to make it. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read what you send me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk. It was produced with help from Cassidy villabrin Baracus. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. 
You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support us. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. We've made it really, really good when you support us. You get ad-free podcasts, you get t-shirts, you get other great swag. You can get ad-free versions of our other shows. We're always making it really, really good to be a Canada Land supporter. Become one today. Thank you.